This morning we come to Psalm 75, as I said earlier, and God's providence is a psalm for giving thanks. We all know what Thursday is coming in our country. So in God's providence, we are here. Psalm 75, I'm going to read the entirety of the psalm. It's ten verses in your English Bible. Let's give attention now to this, the word of God. It is a psalm to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy. It is a psalm of Asaph. It is a psalm. There we read, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pause and ask for his help now as we consider this psalm together this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come now to your word, we first ask and pray that you would remove from us any distractions that may be hindering our ability to hear you. We pray that you would remember your promise to us, that you would give to us your spirit, that you would grant to us he who wrote these words that we might understand the mind of the living God. We pray that you would teach us through this psalm and assure us and strengthen us as we consider it. Even now, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. The story is told of billions of people scattered on a great plain before Almighty God's throne. Some of the groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us? said one. What does he know about suffering? snapped a brunette. She jerked back <coughs> she jerked back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group a black man lowered his collar. What about this? he demanded, showing an ugly rope ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. We have suffocated in slave ships, been wretched from loved ones, toiled till death gave release. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven. Where there was no weeping or fear, hunger or hatred. Indeed, what did God know about what mankind both men and women, had to endure in this world. After all, God lives a pretty sheltered life, they said. Now, if you are like me in any respect, you might be tempted even hearing those words after hearing a story such as that to echo some of the gripes and complaints of the people. Perhaps you might think that they have a legitimate case to make. You are, after all, human. You are, after all, people who are subjected to the evil and the wicked devices of people. You are subject to all of the travails that exist in a fallen world. After all, you might think, what does God actually know about my struggle? What does he actually know what it is like to be subjected to wicked people? What does he actually know what it is like to be subjected to evil evil actions and evil actors? What personal and practical way does God identify with me or you who are sin-wrecked, battered, abused by evil and wicked people? Perhaps your circumstances are not that awful, you might say. 
but they are not so great either. Maybe you are and you think much like these people. Maybe you are struggling with the reality of living in a fallen world and the wickedness of tyrants and the wickedness of leaders and the wickedness of our culture and the evil that befalls all of us. And perhaps you are prone, then therefore, to do the very opposite of what this psalm teaches us. Because indeed, the psalm is very much speaking to one reason, one purpose, why we should even bother to be thankful in the face of evil. But instead, what do we usually do? What do you usually do when life is hard or things are difficult or wicked bosses or leaders give us misery and grief? We murmur, we complain, we're not thankful, we gripe about the circumstance, and we lose sight of the reality that this God that these people are talking about is nowhere to be found in the Bible because he did enter time and space. He entered their time and space as the Lord Jesus Christ, and he himself suffered much worse than any of us ever will in this world. What does he know? about what it is to suffer under the hands of wicked people. He knows far more than you, for he did. He didn't just sit in the comfortable places of heaven where there is no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. He entered our time. He entered a sin-wrecked world, subjected himself to Sinful people, evil people, wicked people. He subjected himself to you and died for you. Indeed, this God has something to say to his people about why we have great reason this morning to be thankful. The psalm is indeed a psalm of thanksgiving. There's no question about that. The very opening lines of the psalm say so. Like all of Scripture, of course, it points us to Christ. And as you know, in my endeavors to preach the gospel, preach from this pulpit, I will always endeavor, as God gives me strength, to show you something of Christ, even from Psalm 75. It tells us something of his nature, his work. It tells us to be thankful, and in so doing, it gives us clear reasons. Really, one, you are to be thankful because your God will vindicate his people as one in the person of Christ endured the evil and wicked of our world. You are to be thankful because the God of heaven who redeemed you lived like you. And endured that which you endure. That he might rescue you from your own sin. And so with God's help this this morning, I want to show you that you are to be a thankful people. Regardless of what the wicked will do. Because your God will vindicate you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to show you that this psalm is teaching us. It's teaching you that you are to be thankful, a thankful people, regardless of what the wicked do, because your God will indeed vindicate you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see this psalm, all ten verses in your English Bible, in four points. I sent a text to one of my elders yesterday about that and he never commented he probably dropped his phone in terror there are four small points but there are four points nonetheless the psalm divides easily this way first we will see the proclamation of the people in verse one and then we will see the proclamation of the lord that is to say jehovah in verses two through five and then the proclamation of the preacher verses 6 through 8, and then finally the proclamation of the individual in verses 9 and 10. Let's first consider the proclamation 
of the people. It's important as you read your Bible that you read carefully. It's important as you consider even this opening verse where it says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. What is important to note from this opening verse is that this is a corporate expression of thanksgiving. We. We give thanks. Three times in the opening verse, the psalmist uses the corporate we. And because he does, this carries with it a number of issues. First, the idea. The idea is that this is used, this psalm particularly, is used in the expression of public, the public gathering of God's people. It is an act of worship. It's an act of corporate worship. It's not so much an act of private worship, although that is important and necessary. And although it is true that God's people should live lives of thanksgiving at all times, the Apostle Paul says that in Ephesians 5, while that is certainly true, there is a place and time when it should be characterized by the collective voice of the people of God. And when would that be? When you're gathered together in this room. Or whatever it is you gather on the Lord's Day to worship the God of heaven. It should be characterized, indeed, by the things that we do, the way we frame our very worship service. All of it should be designed to accomplish this this corporate we that the psalmist here so clearly highlights for us in the psalm. We do it every time we gather. We do it each Lord's Day. And the way in which we worship him. Now there are some implications of course. To the idea of corporately gathering. And corporately thanking. The God of heaven. First. That is the opposite of being thankful. Is being unthankful. Or maybe put a different way. In it's active expression. Uh, complaining. I don't think I need to remind you. That complaining is really a grievous sin against God. I do it. And if you're honest, you do it too. Complaining is a grievous sin against God. It questions His right to rule and reign over His creation. It does the very opposite of what this psalm teaches us to do. It draws into question His right as the sovereign ruler of all that He has made. And frankly, there is no place for it in the, Christian, in the life of the Christian. I know it's times, it's hard. In fact, it's more difficult to be thankful than it is to gripe. It is that way because of our fallen nature. It is that way because of the sin that dwells within us. And we have to remind ourselves, indeed, we need to determine in our own mind, in our own hearts, to be thankful. The psalmist says as much when he says, we give thanks to you. It's a determined act. He does not passively express these things. And later in the psalm, he even goes so far as to say, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to you, the God of heaven. Therefore, it must be that which you determine to do. You and I must determine to be thankful. We must begin and end each day with hearts that are thankful for the mercies of God. In keeping with the whole idea of corporate worship or its corporate expression of thanks, we see here the psalmist even gives us the means as to how we might be thankful. It might surprise you, I guess. I don't know. I don't think it should, really. But at the very end of the psalm, he tells us the means. The means by which we express our thankfulness to the God of heaven. And how is that? In song. Maybe you wonder, well, you know, we come and we're, we're Christians and, you know, it's church and after all, we should sing because that's what Christians do. And so you've been doing that since birth, not really understanding or even realizing the whole purpose of it. But one of the purposes, of course, as at least highlighted by this psalm and the plethora of examples that are scattered across the canon of the Bible, one of the reasons why we sing and worship is to give thanks to the God of heaven for what he has done. 
For example, the, the song of Moses in Exodus 15. Where there they gather corporately, not individually. They gather corporately to do what? To sing. What are they singing? Praises and thanks to God. Why? Why are they doing that? Well, gee, I don't know. Exodus 14 precedes Exodus 15, and that's the Red Sea crossing where God destroys the enemies of his people and rescues his. Much like this psalm highlights for us. We give thanks in expression of corporate worship in song. We do so because we are thankful, at least you ought to be, Thankful for what God has done for you. What has he done for you? I'm actually fearful if I were to ask, perhaps, I think I'd get some canned responses, typical ones, but I wonder how specific you might be for the things that God has done for you. After all, you are all sitting there looking at me very much alive this morning. None of you are dead sitting there, which is to say that God is keeping you alive. Well, I think you can be thankful for that. You have oxygen in this room. You didn't provide it. He did. You can be thankful for that. Your heart, it's beating in your chest. You had nothing to do with that either, and you don't. And you can be thankful for that. You have lights over your head about which you can see the text of the scriptures and the outline in your bulletin. You can be thankful for that. It's warm in here, maybe too warm for some of you, but you can still be thankful for that. Consider the alternative. And I haven't even touched the important things. Those are important, I guess, but nothing compares to the way in which God is going to rescue and vindicate the righteous over against the wicked of the world. Which is precisely what this psalm speaks to. The means is song. Now look, I don't mean to hurt anybody here, but I probably will because that seems to be the MO of the day. But be that as it may, some of you sing like you're not thankful. I mean, I stand up here, I can hear. Some of you sing very well and you sing out. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean you're thankful. It could just be an act. Some of you sing like you don't have anything to be thankful for. And you mumble the words. And then you make excuses for that I don't know the song. And though you've had the hymns given to you a month ahead. Put a different way, parents, you would never tolerate a thank you from your children that was something like this. Thank you, thank you. That's not thankfulness. That's checking a box. We have much to be thankful for. We have many reasons by which we can sing with joy in our hearts for what God has accomplished, indeed what he will accomplish in the life of the wicked and in the lives of the righteous. We have many reasons to be thankful, not just on Thursday of Thanksgiving Day, but thankful every day, but especially here. In the worship of God. It's a corporate expression rooted in song. But it's also a corporate confession. It's a confession of the people itself. We are not left to wonder why we should be thankful. The entire psalm highlights on the central reason which we will get to. But notice first the object of our thankfulness. There's going to be many people on Thursday that are going to celebrate Thanksgiving Day. I don't think they know what they mean. They don't know the Lord. They don't know the God of heaven. They reject the God of heaven. Just exactly who are they thankful to? The chair? Some item in their house? Some frail person? Thanksgiving requires an object. The object of our thankfulness is the triune God. And the psalmist makes that abundantly clear. We give thanks to you, O God. Thanksgiving Day for the unregenerate is really an oxymoron. Being thankful requires an object. You must be thankful to someone, not something. 
But why? What are the reasons? Well, universally, we confess our thankfulness in song and word and heart attitude, all of it, for many different things. Perhaps you need to think about those more. Parents, maybe you need to help your children think about these things more. Perhaps on Thanksgiving Day, as an opportunity, as you sit there before a bounty of which God provided for you, you can go around the table and express those things. However you do it, you need to reflect upon it. These universal things that God has given to you, think of them. Your family, your home, your church, your church family. How about your salvation? The hope of Christ. The fact that you weren't left in your sin and misery. God has purposed to give you him, himself, all of him. He did that in his son. But the context here is very specific. While those things are good and they're useful to reflect upon and to think on our homes, our family, our cars, our all those good things of the, this life that God gives to us, the context here, as the psalmist pens it, is something that you might not necessarily even expect to be a subject of thanksgiving. And that is how he puts it there in that first verse. Your name is near. What does that even mean? You read that, you might think you know, and maybe you do. I don't know, I had to look up a few things. I had to ponder this expression. I thought I understood it, and I wasn't all that far away from what I originally thought. But it carries with it a great deal of encouragement. I can be thankful to the God of heaven no matter what circumstance I find myself, no matter what President Biden is doing, no matter what the Congress is doing. I can be thankful to the God of heaven no matter what the world may do. I can be thankful to the God of heaven no matter what anybody else does, whether good or evil. Why? Because the God of heaven who's redeemed me is near to me. In close proximity. He's not out there in the cosmos running around doing other things. He's present with you. He's omnipresent. Always with his church, always with his people. He is always present. He is near to those who fear him. He never leaves us. He doesn't depart and take a vacation. You and I need vacations. He doesn't take vacations. He doesn't need to take vacations. He's constantly, regularly working on behalf of the church, constantly, regularly present with the church, constantly, regularly carrying the church along from age to age. It ought to comfort you. You look at the world today, it's a disaster area. It's a mess. You got people out there who can't figure out what sex they are. You got people out there that don't know what pronoun to use. You got people out there that don't know what marriage is. They don't, they don't even know how to define a woman. And you think, what a disaster area. Who's going to rescue us from this mess? My Lord is near. He is near. He is never going to abandon the righteous. He is never going to abandon his people. I've got great reason to thank, be thankful, even if the earth was to blow up, which it's not going to. But if it were, the Lord is near. One commentator puts it this way. He says, in this context, however, the statement that God is near probably means that he is in charge of his universe. I think we forget that sometimes. That's why we complain. When you complain, you're saying, sorry, God, I don't like the way you're doing things. Uh, you're not doing it right. I would do it better than you if I were in charge. But he is in charge. He hasn't turned his back as the commentator continues or abandoned its rule to others, but is still present and presiding over everything that happens. Everything. He's a great multitasker. 
He's multitasking six billion plus people's lives all at the same time, which is the definition of multitask, I realize, and all the events that come from it. And so what do we have to worry about? What do we have to gripe about? But we do it nonetheless, and when we do, we need to repent, and we need to confess it and find hope in Christ when we do. But we have no reason. Why? We have reason to be thankful. Why? Because the Lord is near to his people. And he never, ever leaves us to the devices of the wicked. Not really. A sense of context determines the meaning and the focus of our thanksgiving. You are then taught this reason. As offered here in this opening verse is because of that which the Lord himself proclaims in verses 2 to 5. We're not just left with this statement of the Lord is near as rich and theologically as that is. We are given specific reasons in the face of the wicked And in the face of the world that is nuts. And we're given them by the proclamation of the Lord himself. Verse 1 is the psalmist speaking on behalf of the people. Verses 2 through 5, it is as Yahweh himself takes the pen right out of his hands and starts to write. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge I who keep steady its pillars, I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. I, the I am, the great I am, is now speaking. He does it for two reasons. First, to assure his church, to assure his people, to offer hope to them in the face of wicked people. He offers his assurance to his people in a world that is sin-wrecked and evil-filled. As in those days, the days of Asaph, the days of King David, the days of Solomon, the days of the wicked tribes of the north, all of them evil, and the few good ones, but mostly bad ones in the south. All of those days and the days of evil, God comes along to assure his people that while everything seems to be falling apart, it's not And how does he do this? Three ways. Very quickly. First we note that God is sovereign in verse 3. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. It is I who hold it together. It is I who cause it to work and accomplish all that I determine for it to accomplish. It is I who does these things. I, the one who made it all, the one who is in charge of it all, the one who is the alone divine sovereign of heaven and earth, more powerful than the president, more powerful than kings, more powerful than emperors, more powerful than your boss, more powerful than all. Second, We can be assured because of God, not only as the sovereign over all of these things, he's also the judge of them. Now, we have a fairly good legal system in this country. You can say what you want about it. I realize it's not perfect because we have sinners running it. But even the best justice system in the world is going to get it wrong. Not this one. This judge needs no jury. He needs no help. He needs nothing. He will deal with the wicked, with those who trouble his people. He will comfort them. He will deal with them. He will be the one that enacts the right judgment at the right time in a perfect way, better than you could. I know you think, well, I got this person out there. I wish God would get him. That neighbor over there drives me, drives me crazy. I wish he'd hit him right here with a big lightning bolt. Yeah, well, maybe that's what you think. God hasn't been pleased to do that for his purposes. But when he does judge the wicked, he will do it in his time, exactly at the right moment, at the right, in the right way, in such a way that it will be lasting. He is the just judge of heaven and earth. I will judge with equity, he says, fairly. We have politicians on the bench. We have people in Washington that are influenced by lobbyists 
Not this one. You cannot buy him. Nobody can. He will judge in faithfulness. He will judge in righteousness. And third, God is a God of providence. When the earth totters, well, how did that happen? Oops. Man somehow figured out a way around God's plans. Oops. Man did something God didn't expect. Oops. No. It's all part of the divine plan of a sovereign Lord that is operating for the good of the people. Which people? You, me. And you might think, well, it doesn't make any sense, Pastor Bill. I'm confused. How is it that, that China trying to invade Taiwan is for my good? How is it possible that, that North Korea launching nuclear weapons over the Sea of Japan is for the good of the church? I don't know the answer to that question. I just know what the Bible says. I don't know all the intricacies of those things. I just know that God is working for the good of his church always. His providence has one end. Always his glory. I know I said one, two ends. They're really the same. They go together. God's glory and the good of the church. But here in these verses, he issues a warning as well. Now you might think, okay, time to check out now because I'm good. I'm a Christian. And so the assurance thing is, is, is all about me. And this warning thing, that's about those other people. Those wicked people, whoever they are. Well, don't check out. Listen. Because even embedded in the warning is assurance for the people of God, but also embedded in the warning is a call of God to the souls of men who may think they are Christians and are not. God takes pleasure in assuring his people of his sovereign, just, providential work in the lives of his people. He does it through these comforting, positive expressions, but he also does it through the warnings that he gives to the wicked. And as you note in these verses, verses 4 and 5, he does it through three direct, consecutive, negative expressions. What does he say? I, that is Jehovah, say to the boastful, do not boast. And, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. First he says, do not boast. It's very much the same words, and it's likely that Asaph, as he's penning these things, is mindful of the very song of Hannah from 1 Samuel 2. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read just one verse from that well-known story. Of course, you know her situation. She wanted a son. She wanted a child. She prayed and she prayed and she prayed. And what did she get? Samuel. And in response to it, she prays. She's thankful. Hmm. Verse 3. Well, verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. The wicked, they boast in their accomplishments. They boast in their efforts. They boast in that which they have established. They boast in their own pomp and circumstance. They take no pleasure in giving credit to the God of heaven, but instead they take all the credit to themselves. And Jehovah says, you better stop that mess. You better knock it off because you are going to pay the just punishment of a just and righteous God. Do not boast. Some translations even translate this word for boast in the ESV as foolish. Do not act foolishly. Why? Because it is foolish to live and rule thinking that there is no God in heaven who is going to require an account of, his, of people. But yet every single day, 
people do. Every single day you rub shoulders at the job with people who live and act like there is no God. It's foolish. Second, the second negative expression that the psalmist gives to us here, the very pen of Jehovah's, do not lift up your horn. Now, that may be an odd phrase for you. It's a word picture, of course. It's a word picture of strength who lifts up its head in defiance and anger. Against who? Against the God of heaven. In rebellion against them, against him. God warns the wicked to not act this way against him. It's a biblical metaphor for strength here used wrongly. In this case, it's put in the negative. That which shows itself to be in defiance to the God of heaven. And third, and finally, he says, do not speak arrogantly. Don't speak arrogantly. One of the problems with humanity, frankly, is they think too much of themselves. This whole idea of, oh, that person just doesn't love himself enough. Bob baloney, he loves himself too much. That's the problem. Don't speak arrogantly about what you've done. Don't speak arrogantly about your... How great you are. This is the Bill paraphrase. Did he listen? No. He continued to boast. He continued to brag about how great and wonderful he was. And God just went, okay, I guess that's fine. Wrong. Psalm 75. He judged with equity. His sovereign rule came came crashing down on the neck of this king. And for seven periods of time, he was made to wander in the wilderness like a beast. Oh, God wouldn't do that today. You figure that out. The implications of this entire warning to the wicked are clear. On one hand, we have great reason as Christians to be thankful because they have been taught that their God is sovereign, a just judge who will by no means clear the guilty and works all things according to the counsel of his own will for his glory and their good. Through the warnings to the wicked, they know and understand that God will in fact deal with the wicked of the earth. Maybe not as fast or as often as you might like, but it comes nonetheless. But there is another implication, and it's sobering. You see, you don't have to be a world leader to fall under the warning of a holy God. All you need to do is be a sinner. Don't rebel against him. I don't know where you are spiritually in this room, and I don't have the luxury, frankly, of assuming that everything's just fine that you're just sailing along easily into heaven. And maybe you are. But maybe you're not. The warning to you here is not just for world leaders. The warning is to you specifically today, this morning, right now. Don't you rebel against the God of heaven. Don't act arrogantly. Don't think you're building your kingdom and it's all up to you. Don't rebel against him. If this psalm teaches us anything, it teaches us one thing, and that is he will not be mocked by what he says. He's warned you. He's told you plainly. You who are wicked, you who are outside of Christ, you who do not know him, you are under his just judgment. Be warned. 
Don't boast in your own abilities, your own greatness, your own position or power. Don't rebel against him. But instead, humble yourself to him. There, finding the hope and relief and the assurance that God's people everywhere can have. This leads, of course, to the proclamation of the preacher. Verses 7 and 8, or 6 through 8 in the psalm. First, there is a, a declaration of the preacher itself. He now is speaking. There in verse 6 we read, for, for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it all, all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The preacher here, as it were, offers a mini-sermon in these verses. Men don't promote themselves or exalt themselves to position of power. You might think, well, that's not very comforting. we got pretty, some pretty dumb people running things. My boss, you should meet him. I don't think he's got an IQ higher than 12. That's irrelevant, isn't it? He is in that position not because of his intelligence or lack of it. He's not in that position because of his degrees. He's not in that position for what he knows or doesn't know. Ultimately, he's in that position because God has put him there. And the faster we get that through our heads as people, as Christians especially, the, lot, the less we'll gripe and complain about what God is doing. There was a bunch like this in the days of old. Now, they didn't like very much what this leader was doing, and so they decided to tell him what's what. And uh, one of them got leprosy, and we're talking about Miriam and Aaron and Moses. Now, God speaks to us too, you know. Grumbling. Who put Moses in that position? God did. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. A president, a world leader, people of power and position, whether pastor, elder, deacon, supervisor, or manager, have their position because of the just declaration of a holy God. Now, it may make no sense to you, but it makes perfect sense to him. They are there because of his say-so. Period. And in this declaration, there's a determination. As God exalts, he also brings to ruin those who would rebel against him. Note, another word picture is given by the psalmist. There is a cup in the hand of the Lord. Verse 8. It's not the only place in the Bible where this image is given. It's an image of the wrath of God. Again, I don't have time to look at these references, but you want to note these. Isaiah 51, verse 17, and Revelation 18 and verse 6 are just two examples of many in which this phrase or expression speaks directly to the very wrath of God. It is a picture of divine judgment. It is a picture of a settled reality that the wicked will suffer at the hand of a just sovereign God who judges with equity. They will drink it, as the text says, down to the dregs. Now that's strange language for you children, I suspect. It was strange to me, frankly, but they will drink all of it. Every ounce of the wrath of God will be drunk by the wicked. Not an ounce will be spared. All of it. How much is that? An infinite amount. And so in light of these truths, the words of assurance that God is in control, that the wicked will not get away with anything, that they are in their position due to God's good pleasure, which is always ordered for the good 
of his people, though it can't be easily explained, we turn finally to the proclamation of the individual. But really, it's a proclamation of everyone in this room, at least it should be. A commitment given, verses 9 and 10, in light of all that has been said, a commitment is made. Because you are just, because you are righteous, because you are sovereign, because you judge well, because you protect your people, because you will punish the wicked, they will drink it down to its dregs, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Put a different way, I will express my thankfulness in song to the God of heaven. Because he is near to those who fear him. He rejects the wicked, but he draws to himself those who fear him. There is a commitment and reasons offered, summarized in that the rebellious will come to an end. They will all fall at the hand of a righteous God. Verse 10, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off. Leading to the delivery of the righteous. Not just in this life, maybe not even in this life. Generations have come and generations have gone and have seen nothing but tyranny in their wake. But ultimately, in the great day in which the Lord sets all things right, he vindicates, openly, publicly vindicates his people, ruling over them, defending them, caring for them. Put a different way, they will not endure God's wrath because he has. What do we learn from this psalm? Well, there's many things to learn, I suspect, but two, I think, are big takeaways. First, you have reason, you have many reasons to be thankful. I've already mentioned some of them. I haven't scratched the surface, frankly. But the one highlight of this psalm is that of a, is that of a God's righteous judgment over the wicked and evil of our world. Sure, I live here. I know what it's like. I watch the news. I see what's happening. Things may seem nuts right now. But God is sovereign. He's not aloof to any of it. You trust him. You can't trust him by griping. That's not an expression of trust. That's an expression of distrust. You trust him by thanking him for who he is and what he will do and what he is doing for his people. Second, remember this. Christ endured the judgment of God as one who knew no sin becoming sin for you and me. Really what the psalm points to is the one who was able to withstand the infinite judgment of a holy God. Did he not drink to the dregs, down to the dregs, the demand of a holy God for you and me? Did he not cry out, my father, why have you forsaken me? He cried, he cried that for you. He took to himself the wrath that was yours, for you were the wicked But Jesus took that for you. You were the wicked, the evil, the unrighteous, the arrogant, the boastful. And he is the perfect lamb who knew no sin but became sin for you. That he might accomplish the full and complete justice of God for your sake. He didn't complain about it. If anyone in the world had any reason to complain, it would have been him. But no, no, he entrusted himself to his Father who judges justly and righteously. In the face of evil people, he willingly endured the shame of the cross 
unlike the gripes of the opening illustration, much to the contrary, actually. The God who wrote this psalm knows what it is like to suffer at the hands of evil people. And he did. He did. He did it for evil, wicked, unrighteous people. So tell me, tell me, why are you not more thankful? You have every reason today and tomorrow and on Thursday and next Lord's Day and the one after that and on into eternity to praise the God of heaven for what he's done and what he will do. As a church, then, therefore, we must join together in praising our God, thanking Him, who did not sit idly by in the heavens and watch us suffer, but came and endured the evil of this world. He did it for you. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the glorious hope That he who knew no sin endured the wicked, evil actions of wicked, evil men. We should have. He did. We have great hope. We have great reason to be thankful. We have great reason to praise the God of heaven who did not sit idly by, but entered our world to rescue us from it. Help us, Lord. May we be more thankful. For your great work we pray, for Christ's sake, amen.